So uh, I am up here first to introduce Father Pavone, who uh, I've had the uh, honor and pleasure to go around the country with. We were just in on the front lines, literally. Shameful. Shameful as South Carolina is acting. South Carolina is acting. Um, it can be worse. Uh, the, we were together in the first state that gave the nation abortion, Colorado, and, and, and just below it, New Mexico, the last state uh, to give abortion on demand, no restrictions, free, just like China and North Korea. And we went together, and uh, I just want to say, I could read the litany of things that Father Pavone has done, how many babies he saved, and uh, how many people he's brought to Christ. Um, but I'm just going to tell you that I know the power of Father Pavone. I have been with him, and I have seen it. I have heard it from women. I've seen them in his arms. I've seen them crying. I've heard it. He said Holy Mass earlier. One time I was in Ohio uh, with a bunch of kids from a high school in front of an abortion facility with uh, Bud McFarlane, a friend of mine. He wrote um, Pierced by a Sword. You may know him. He lives in Ohio. And Father Pavone wasn't there. You know, I'm not sure if Padre Pio could bilocate. I'm not sure if Father Pavone can bilocate. I'm pretty sure he can. Actually, the number of people in the world that know him. And this woman was hired by Planned Parenthood. I'm not making this up. My wife's here, and she never has said anything bad. She's the best person I ever met in my life. She never lied. She, she can back me up on this one. And this woman had a T-shirt on. You've seen him. Maybe you've been there. Maybe someone in your family has had that look of hate. And, and she had uh, uh, I do me, you do you T-shirt on. And it said, shout your abortion on the back end. She had been hired and she had a boom box. And whenever we talked, she turned it up with satanic music. She had half her head, like, you know, when are you going to get your haircut finished kind of thing. And half with like, purple and all that stuff. It was, it, it, we were praying for her so hard. There was a nun there. And what an image it was of womanhood and femininity uh, and, and, this, and this poor lady. And, of course, she was post abortive as she told us. And she had to shout her abortion to justify the industry or she had to. And in the end, we read Father Pavone's prayer. And she, her music stopped. And she began shaking and foaming. And foaming. And she stopped entirely. Now, I don't know about demonology or oppression or whatever, but I can tell you that on this day, at that time, reading Father Pavone's prayer and knowing that he was out there his entire life since 93, dedicated to taking care of the unborn and praying for those that have no voice except for the people in this room. Praise be God for you. I can tell you the power even when he isn't in the room. So it's my great honor to introduce and welcome, and what a blessing it is for all of you and for us, all the glory to God. But praise be to God that this man said yes when he was called Father Frank. Right. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> wow, this is all so great to be back in South Carolina. And it's always great, Matt, to be with you. And the whole 40 Days team, I think often back to those early days after when, when successful uh, on a local level, the idea was being discussed and discerned about whether to move this to a national level as a campaign and I was so privileged to be involved in those early discussions and discernments and I didn't have any doubt from 
from day one when that idea was floated because I had been around on this, as Matt just said, for the last 30 years. This has been my full-time work. I don't have any parish responsibilities. I mean, it's just fighting abortion as director of Priests for Life. So I had been to already to all 50 states and prayed in front of so many of the abortion mills in, in America and been around the kitchen tables of pro-life activists in, 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 in every part of the nation. And I saw the thirst and I saw the, the desire. I saw the, the, the fire burning underneath the surface because people were going out to the abortion facilities, but they needed and they wanted uh, the, the organization of those efforts, they, 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 they needed something to uh, really take all those flames that were already burning and let them have their maximum impact on America and on those abortion mills and on the abortionists themselves and the clinic workers and on the people in the community to wake up about what is going on in their midst. And so 40 Days has filled that, that role. And of course, we know uh, the many efforts in the movement that bring people out in front of these killing centers and praise God, you know, 40 Days has that spirit that, that we also uh, uh, embrace of, of the collaborative uh, effort, the, 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 the sense that John Paul II wrote in Evangelium Vitae when he said, no one has a monopoly on the defense of life. This is the call and the task of everybody. And so working together across denominational lines, 40 Days embodies that, working together across organizational lines, the different groups in the pro-life movement. One of the, the privileges I have, and Matt has been involved in this uh, over the years, is to facilitate uh, meetings of the national pro-life leaders where we come together, we learn more about what each other and our groups are doing, and we explore ways to do more together, not in any way to try to, to dilute the, the specific charism and focus of each group, but rather to let the strengths of each group reinforce the strengths of all the others. And uh, together we move forward in that way. We will be having another one of those strategic meetings. It'll be a three-day meeting of the national leaders uh, at our headquarters in Florida in February. So, you know, bringing the leaders to Florida in February, you see, we have a method to the, to the, to the, to the madness here. I mean, it's good, you get a good, good attendance at these strategic meetings. So, um, you know, it really is a joy to be here, to be back in Charleston. You know, we've had a great relationship with the Diocese of Charleston. Uh, Priests for Life has for many years, and Kathy, uh, where's Kathy? She's here and has been a big part of that facilitating that relationship and uh, we're grateful for that. You know, the, um, in, in sharing some thoughts with you here tonight, I was asked to um, reflect on the, the, the value and the importance of volunteering uh, for the cause of life and volunteering specifically uh, to support 40 Days for Life and the people that you also try to encourage to come out for an hour, come out for a few hours, come out for some kind of regular commitment to make these campaigns a success. What is it that we can think to encourage ourselves? What is it that we can say to the other people we know to show them the importance of this? Brothers and sisters, let's think first just about ourselves. It builds us up 
even if it did nothing else than to take our convictions and deepen them on the inside because we're expressing them on the outside. If you stand on a public street in front of an abortion facility, even if you don't say anything, even if you don't hold a sign, people know why you're there. And being there for that reason, externally, not just in the quiet and privacy of your own home, but externally, publicly, that anybody can see you, that strengthens your conviction. And we, 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 uh, it's not selfish to think about it in these, in these terms and to do it for this reason, among other reasons, because we need to strengthen our convictions. And this is a, 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 one of the best ways of doing it is simply to express them publicly. And that connects with the idea of coming out, as Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, he is in our midst. We encourage one another. Each one of us that goes out there is encouraging and strengthening the convictions of everybody else that is out there. Scripture talks about this. Do not fail to come together. The letter to the Hebrews says, talking about the Sunday obligations, the reason why there's a Sunday obligation for us to gather and worship. Because we are strengthening one another as the body. We're not just individuals relating to God. We are a body, a community relating to him. And scripture says, do not neglect the duty of coming together. And in other passages of the word, saying, encourage one another while it is still today. In other words, while we still have time before that final judgment, while we still have time to grow in grace, help each other do so. This movement actually does that. This movement actually, by bringing us out as a group, is facilitating our own salvation and our own growth in holiness. There's nothing less than that. And that's pretty, pretty motivating and important. But brothers and sisters, we think of it also, obviously, from two other angles. What it does for the babies, and of course, those connected with the baby, the moms, the dads, and relatives, the siblings, the grandparents, the whole family, and the friends. We'll reflect about that a little bit. And then what it does for the wider society. Because again, we're standing out there in public. So other people are seeing us. What it does for the babies. When you even consider being involved in something like a prayer vigil at an abortion facility. Think of the passage in Luke's gospel where Jesus says this. When you have a banquet, do not invite your wealthy friends and neighbors. They may repay you. Invite instead the crippled, the blind, the lame. And Jesus said, you should be happy that they cannot repay you. You will be repaid in the resurrection of the just. Think about that. Helping somebody that can't pay you back, that should make you happy. Now, what movement 
of social justice or human rights helps a group of people more unable to pay us back than the pro-life movement. There, there, there is none. There's a lot of social services that go on and you have the immediate feedback. You have the immediate satisfaction of a person smiling, looking at you smiling, and thanking you for what you have done for them. These children that we're standing up for don't even know that the danger that they are in. They don't even know it. Much less can they help themselves by speaking up, by protesting, by marching, by voting, or even by praying. You ever reflect on the fact that these babies in the womb are too young to even know how to pray? And people who are in various situations of distress, at least they can pray. They can't even do that. What kind of help can they give themselves? Maybe, maybe they kick and mom feels them. and That, that sometimes changes things, right? But that's about the only way they can defend themselves. I mean, they can give mommy a kick. Brothers and sisters, this is quintessential, perfect gospel work when we work for the unborn. You should be happy that they cannot repay you. You will be repaid in the resurrection of the just. The moms, the dads, I, you know, I, I, the other night, I uh, was at a uh, pregnancy center banquet in Orlando, not far from where I live, where our Priest for Life headquarters is, in Titusville. And in Orlando, well, one of the large pregnancy centers had its annual banquet. There were about 900 people there. And I brought some special guests. I brought a woman who had been helped by that very center back in 1994. It was the first year, my, my first full-time year, of doing the Priest for Life work, and I was praying with a group of people in front of an Orlando area abortion mill. She was in the waiting room already. She was ambivalent, of course, as most of these moms are, and she looked out the window and she saw us praying there. And she said to herself, well, what am I doing in here? These people are out here. They're saying they can help me. There's a priest out there. I'm a Catholic. What am I doing in here? She felt that guilt. She felt how inappropriate it was to be in an abortion mill. So she found the strength to get up and walk out. And she came over to us and the people from this pregnancy center accompanied her then through that pregnancy, gave her the help that she needed. It wasn't so much, by the way, financial help. She had the means to, to have this child. She just needed somebody to walk her through the doubts and the fears. And they did. And she asked me then, six months later, to baptize that baby, and we did a public baptism at a Sunday Mass. That was in 1994. But the, but the even more beautiful thing, they kept in touch. They kept in touch, and as the years went on, oh, when she was about eight years old, we did a, a video together, a videotaping. I sat down with uh, Janet, our associate director, and our... And, 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 um, the mom, whose name is Helene, and the baby's name is Guadalupe. And she told the story as an eight-year-old girl 
of how somebody in the family circle who uh, she was present one, one night and they were over the house and started talking about that they were pregnant, they didn't know what to do, they think they might want to have an abortion. This eight-year-old girl talked her out of having an abortion. And so now this life that was saved was already saving other lives. Well, the other night in Orlando, this was 1994 she was born, so now she's, what, 28 years old? She was there. The mom was there, whom the pregnancy center helped. The baby was there who was saved that day. And that child, Guadalupe, now 28, she had with her at that banquet her own two daughters. Amen. Wasn't that beautiful? This... And I mention this because, brothers and sisters, what we are doing as we go out there, as advocates for these children, first and foremost, and by the way, you know, when people say to us, well, why are you focusing so much on the unborn? But isn't that one of the most... I, I, I know, it, 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 and people ask that question, a lot of them, with very, very good will. It's not that, that to say anything bad about them. But the question itself is like, what do you mean? We're not the ones who decided to focus on the unborn. We're focusing on them precisely because they're the ones that have been targeted by Roe v. Wade. They're the ones whose right to life was taken away, not anybody else. Why are you asking me why I'm focusing? It's like, it's like oh, there's a building burning down downtown. Why are you, why are you focusing on that building? You know, don't you care about all the other buildings? But they, they really, in a sense, it's a stupid question. You know, why are you focusing on the unborn? Why do you think we're focusing on the unborn? They're the ones whose right to life has been denied under the law. That's why. When somebody is in greater danger, you give them greater attention and help. It's the people who are under attack that you go and defend first. Is this not common sense that we apply in absolutely every other setting of life? Why do we have to be the ones that are even asked this question? I, I really want to, I mean, why do they even ask us this question? You know, that's sort of like also you know, when they say to you, oh, well, what do you do for the baby for the rest of her life? When you save these children, oh, what are you doing them for the rest of their life? You know what the answer to that is? One word. Everything. Because you just gave them the rest of their life. I mean, again, do they not see this? A firefighter runs into a burning building and rescues people from being burned to death. Oh, well, what do you do for them for the rest of their life? <laughs> Would anyone in their right mind ask a firefighter that question? An emergency medical technician, somebody dying of a heart attack, they save them. They resuscitate them. Oh, yeah, but what do you do for the rest of their life? Well, what kind of question is that? Do you utterly just, have you just utterly missed the fact that we just saved their life? When that child whose life you saved has his or her first day of school, they have you to thank. When they have their first date and the joy that comes from realizing that they're, they're in love with somebody, they have you to thank. When they, when they get their first job, when they graduate from high school or from college, when they, when they get married, when they have their first child, when they have any experience in life at all, they have you to thank. You've given them everything. And we have to take hold of that and recognize that and be proud of that. When we're going out 
and volunteering in this great movement, we are helping not just that child for the rest of his or her life, but that mom and that dad, because this girl, uh, uh, this, this young woman that I just talked to you about, she said, Father, you not only saved my daughter's life, you, and she's talking about the pro-life movement, saved my life too. Because having recognized since then the gravity of what abortion is, I know I would not be, have been able to live with myself. And we see, of course, the pain and the devastation that abortion brings. And that's why we have built over these years a beautiful collaboration between 40 Days for Life and the Silent No More campaign. You know the Silent No More campaign, right? Those who are saying, I regret my abortion. Those who have had abortion, they've been through healing. They're telling their stories. This is a joint project of Priests for Life and Anglicans for Life. This year it's 20 years old, by the way, that we give these people a platform by which to share that, those stories. And what a powerful presence they are out in front of an abortion facility when they can say to those young moms and dads walking in, hey, listen, I can tell you what this is like, what you're about to go through. I've been through it. Let me, let me talk to you. So we're helping them. We're helping the dads. We're helping the grandparents. Isn't it a sad sight to see a grandparent of an unborn child dragging that, that child's mother in there to get an abortion. That is really one of the most sad and most infuriating things at an abortion mill. What kind of a mother, what kind of a father does that to their daughter? They have no idea of the, of the devastation that they are unleashing upon her. And those that force their sons to push for the abortion out of the pride and the arrogance, or oh, I'm not going to be, you know, let my son go through this, you know, and, 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 and you're going to let him go through the pain of an, of an abortion? Fathers commit the sin of abortion when they choose it. They don't have the procedure on their bodies, although some people today think they can. I don't know, these, I don't know, what, I don't know what planet these people come from. You know, that's why this election, talk about the election for a minute. This is not just a choice between one party and another one platform and another, one policy and another. This election is a choice between common sense and insanity. Amen. And when you have a political party that is just obsessed with saying that a man is not a man and a woman is not a woman, you know, how did we get to the point where we, where we can't say a man is a man or a woman is a woman? I think it's because for 50 years we haven't been able to say a baby is a baby. Think about it for a moment. That was the break with reality. People say, oh, well, you know, they're breaking with reality. It's basic biology. A man is a man, a woman is a woman. That's right. It is basic biology. It's common sense, and it has been for all of human history. Except we didn't break with that in 2022 or 2020 or whenever all this nonsense really erupted. We broke with it in 1973. By saying a baby's not a baby, isn't that the same denial of biology, denial of basic reality, the same kind of pretend that, oh, well, by my, in my mind and by my choice, I can define who I am, I can define who my baby is. Can it get worse? Yeah, it can actually get worse. And that's why we've got to deliver in this election not just a victory, but an overwhelming rebuke 
to this insanity and this destructive nonsense that has taken hold of our country. Otherwise, we're not going to have a country. And, 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 and the church, by the way, if the church doesn't step up to the plate now, in a situation like this, So, no, no, you're not, you're not the crazy ones. You are, you are completely sane, okay? It is those around us who have become insane. Uh, we have to join hands with the ones who still actually can both see and speak common sense. We are helping, brothers and sisters, the grandparents. We're helping the friends. Ha ha have we thought enough about the fact that if a mom regrets her abortion, as we know so many of them do, okay? They live with a lifetime of regret. What about the friend who drove her there that day? Isn't that friend also likely at some point to realize what she did or what he did? And to say, well, wait a minute, that was, that was a baby. I, I, I helped her to kill her baby. Maybe that mom, maybe she does, maybe she doesn't ever talk to that friend again about the abortion. But you can be sure a lot of these friends suffer and they need our attention too and they need our healing too. And if we, by these efforts, by these vigils, can help those friends not do what they are about to do, we are doing a tremendous service for them, for their entire lives. We need to be talking about the friends, the complicity of the friends. And of course, you know, as do I, the help that we're giving to the abortionists themselves and the clinic workers, so many of them having turned around because of the presence of the 40 Days activists. You know, again, this is an arena that I've been working on since 1993. Dr. Philip Ney, a Canadian psychiatrist, did groundbreaking research into how and why a person would ever be motivated to become an abortionist and how and why they can turn around. And what's the path to healing? There's a specific path to healing for these people. I serve as pastoral director of Rachel's Vineyard and Silent No More. We're dealing with the moms, the dads that have had the abortions. There's a path of healing for them. You know, we do about 1,000 retreats a year in Rachel's Vineyard. It's about 72 countries. That's a specific path of healing. But the path of healing for the abortionist and the clinic workers that's a, it's a, that's a different thing. There are many of the common, same common elements. But that is a very, very steep path of healing. They have got to pull aside so many layers of denial. They've got to face up to so many lies they told themselves. But I'll tell you something about them. Friends, they live, they, the abortionists now that are practicing, the, their staff, they live in hell. They are so conflicted about what they're doing. They'll try to make you think they're so confident. Oh, I'm helping women, you know, and they'll walk in there confidently. Oh, no, no, they're living in hell. It's so bad. And when they come to us and they're ready to make that journey of healing, it's so wondrous to see. It's hard work. It's hard work. One young woman who helped in abortions uh, came up to me the one day it was in the Basilica in Washington and, and she started the journey of healing and I said to her on that first day that I met her, I said, how many, how many babies did you, did you help to kill? She knew right away, without 
pausing for a second, 239, Father. They, they, a lot of them, they know the exact number. A year later, I saw her. Because I told her as we set her on the path of healing, one of the things we have them do is literally think about each and every baby that they killed. Give that baby a name. Write that baby a letter of apology. Every single one. It's hard work. A year later, I saw her in the same place, in the Basilica in Washington. I knew exactly what she was going to say. Because as she came walking up to me, she was glowing. The radiance on her face was unforgettable. And you know what she said to me? These are the words she said to me. Father, I did it. I did it. I reconciled with all those babies. Because, friends, that's what we have to do, right? It's a matter of reconciliation. I reconciled with those babies. They're my brothers and sisters. This is, this is the, the anatomy of victory over abortion. The rehumanization of the children and of those who killed them and of all the rest of us who unfortunately too often have been bystanders. There's the victim. There's the perpetrator, okay, the one who actually does the killing. And then there's the observer. This is a classic triangle when you think about violence. There's always the perpetrator, the victim, and then there's the observer, the observers, many of them. Who of those three is likely the most guilty? The observer. The victim is a victim. The perpetrator may be under strange and unusual pressures or deceptions. Not that they're not guilty, but they're not necessarily the most guilty. Because the observer is detached. The observer can be more objective. The observer doesn't have skin in the game, so to speak, or something to lose. The observer may be of the three, the one who most accurately perceives what's going on here. They share the most responsibility. It's okay to be an observer. We just can't afford to be a passive observer. We've got to be observers who are, because we're observing, and we know what we're observing, we engage. Remember the story of Kitty Genovese? I'm from New York originally. This was a woman, young woman, was murdered in, in outside her queen's apartment one night getting home from work in the middle of the night. For 45 minutes, she was attacked, an attacker who came back three different times. She was yelling and screaming. I mean, this is in the New York City apartment. There's people all around. People, lights were going on in the apartment building. People were opening the windows, looking at what's going on. 45 minutes, nobody intervened, and she died. <sighs> there, was a, there was a whole thing that, 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 that erupted after that. A book that was written, 38 Witnesses. Why, why did no, none of these witnesses do anything? There were even psychological 
tests, experiments that started in some of the universities in New York trying to figure out the reason for the Genovese syndrome. Why do people observe and just stand back when there's a victim? And, 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 and they did an experiment. I love to tell this story. You know, if you sign up, I don't know if any of you have ever volunteered to be part of a psychological experiment. But if you do, if you do, it's, it's very interesting. You don't necessarily know when the experiment has begun. So you show up at the university, oh, Mrs. Jones, thank you so much for signing up for the experiment. We're going to get started in a little while, but would you just wait here in this room? Okay, so this is what they did, right? So they had Mrs. Jones sitting in the room. Well, while she's sitting there waiting for what she thinks is going to be the beginning of the experiment, which has actually already begun, smoke started coming in from under the door of the adjoining room. She was sitting in there by herself. She sees the smoke. What do you think she does? She gets up and she tells somebody, I think we have a problem. I think there's a fire in the room next door. Oh, thank you very much. We'll get on that right away. <sighs> then the next three people who signed up for the experiment showed up. They sat the three of them together in a room. And guess what happened while they were waiting? Smoke started coming in from under the door of the adjoining room. And guess what they did? Nothing. They sit there and <clears throat> you know, coughing, you know, rubbing their eyes, blowing the smoke away from their face, and just sitting there while the smoke is pouring in. Why? What's the, what's the psychology of that? Why does the one do something and the three do nothing? Because aside from looking at the evidence that there's a problem, they're looking at each other. Well, I don't want to st stick out like a sore thumb. I mean, if those two don't think that this smoke is any reason to be alarmed, why should I get alarmed? And they're all feeding off of each other's inaction. Might that explain a little bit what's going on with abortion? You and I see the smoke. Listen, this is a baby. Abortion is an act of violence that kills a baby. Civilized societies don't kill their babies. We got to do something to stop this. We got to sound the alarm. I get up, hey, there's a fire. And yet, and many of our fellow citizens who are not volunteering for 40 days, who are not involved, they see the smoke. But they're looking around and saying, well, this seems to be okay with my neighbor. My friend, they know about abortion. They don't seem to be upset by it. My senator isn't worried about it. My congressman doesn't speak up for it. In fact, he donates to Planned Parenthood. My pastor doesn't even say anything about it. Supreme Court thinks, seems to think it's okay. The media, though, they're all for it. And, oh, I don't want to be the crazy one saying, oh, there's a smoke is coming out of the room. You see, isn't it the same thing? We're paying too much attention to one another's lack of action rather than being faithful to what the evidence tells us that we have got an emergency on our hands. So Prophet Jeremiah says, woe to those who say peace, peace, when there is no peace. There's no peace when, when one human life is being, is being destroyed. When one person's human rights are being violated, there is no peace. It's time for people to stand up and start disrupting things. Woe to the false prophets. Peace, peace when there is no peace. John Paul II said, 
to those young people in Denver. Remember the World Youth Day in 1993. Woe to you, he said. Paul says, he quoted St. Paul, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And he said to them, woe to you if you do not succeed in defending life. I knew John Paul II. I worked under him for two years at the Vatican. I also knew Mother Teresa, who was often quoted about, you know, that saying, we're not called to be successful but faithful. Well, what she meant is, you stay faithful even if you don't have success. Because you know you're fulfilling God's call and God's will. And yes, God will reward you even if you don't have success. That's what she was trying to say. Some people misinterpret those words to say we don't have to aim for success. Oh, yes, we do. And John Paul II said, woe to you. He didn't say in that, in that, in that sermon on the, the Feast of the Assumption there on World Youth Day 1993, he didn't say to those young people, woe to you if you do not try to defend life or be faithful in defending life. Friends, he said, woe to you if you do not succeed in defending life. Because what's the alternative? Death takes over everything. Smoke is coming out of the room. Fire is going to engulf everything. If we don't get it right in this election, we risk losing the nation. And this is no metaphor or exaggeration. There is an emergency here. We are at the point now where by volunteering for movements like this, showing up, getting others to show up, persevering, and doing it joyfully, we are building on a unique moment of victory because the Dobbs case, the Supreme Court has said to us as the people of the United States of America, you get to set the policy on abortion. You get to decide how much protection the unborn babies have. You get to decide that because you elect your lawmakers. You don't elect the members of the Supreme Court, you can't lobby them, and if they make the wrong decisions, you can't vote them out of office. But you can do all three of those things with your elected lawmakers, and therefore, the court said, we're not taking a position on how many rights the unborn child has. They didn't hand us a victory on a silver platter like they had done in 1973 for the pro-aborts. The pro-aborts have never had to make their case to the American people because they were given a decree from on high that abortion is a constitutional right. Oh, yeah, we're, we're all set. That's why they're so intellectually lazy. They don't have any arguments because they've never had to develop any arguments. There aren't any anyway. You can't justify the killing of a baby. But they haven't had to do so. All they've had to do is hide behind the robes of the justices. Well, guess what? The court said you can't do that anymore. We're not going to impose a policy on you one way or the other. We're going to let you do the hard work that mature American citizens do, who know what freedom means, who know how to persuade one another, who know what elections mean, who know how to make laws, and who know how to make, uh, hold their lawmakers accountable. Go have at it. Do it. Do the work. This is what the court is saying to us. Well, we've been doing that for all these decades. We've, we've made the case on the merits of the case. We've worked hard to elect pro-life lawmakers, and we've worked hard to make laws. Roe v. Wade kept blocking them and blocking them and blocking them, and guess what? That roadblock's out of the way now. The road is open. The door is open. The opportunity is placed in our hands. We have a good election on Tuesday, which I'm confident we will. A year from now, 
we can see unbelievable protection for the unborn. Like we haven't been able to imagine yet. There's a lot of it already. And I know the challenges you're working through right at this moment here in South Carolina. And we're standing with you to work, at, work that out together with you. Let's keep doing it and keep getting others involved in doing it. We don't sit back and wait for people to come to us to say there's an emergency or to say what are we going to do about abortion. We go out there and we pray at those abortion mills as you've been doing and as you've encouraged others to do because we know that we have to be the ones to sound the alarm and we have to go into their space, our fellow citizens, not wait for them to come to us. The apostles, when they were filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they didn't sit back in the upper room and say, okay, well, you know, we have our appointment books here. When people knock at the door and they want us to talk to them about Jesus, we'll be glad to accommodate them. They didn't do that. They said, we're not wasting any time. We're going out to them. There's a salvation that we need to proclaim to them. And we're going out there and we're doing it, whether they want it or not. And that's why Paul said, and I say to you, preach the word in season and out of season, convenient or inconvenient, because you're inconveniencing yourselves. All our volunteers are inconveniencing themselves. Two o'clock in the morning on a cold night in front of an abortion mill. Whether convenient or inconvenient, whether welcome or unwelcome, preach the word of life. Friends, extend the victory of life. And know that we at Priests for Life are working with you heart in heart, hand in hand, and we will continue to do so until we have that final victory. Please do stay. I know many of you were telling me before you're in already in close contact with our ministry. I invite all of you to be because this is one movement and this is one victory. Mark my words that we will all be celebrating together. One victory after another after another is in our grasp and is on our horizon. Let's look forward to struggling to get that victory. Let's look forward to celebrating it. God bless you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you.